You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. This morning our focus will be on verses 34 through 36, but we read beginning with verse 29, Matthew chapter 23, we read beginning with verse 29. Our Lord said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? On account of this, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, these gatherings of ours on the Lord's day are needful for us, which is why they are commanded by you. We gather today as your church, thankful for the means of grace found in corporate worship. Thankful, Lord, that on the days we come and are full of joy and zeal and strength, we can exhort those who come with weariness and discouragement and perhaps even some with spiritual sluggishness, Lord. On one Sunday, it may be us who are the exhorters from the position of strength, on some days it may be us who are receiving the exhortation, the position of more weakness. But Lord, this is how you've designed that we strengthen one another. We exhort each other all the more as we see the day approaching. So whatever spiritual sluggishness is found in this congregation, whatever lack of zeal, Lord, would you address that even today through the means that we've already been blessed by, singing of truth and prayer and spiritual friendship and fellowship. But Lord, also, as Your Word goes forth this day, would You encourage us? Would You feed Your sheep? Would You meet the needs of Your people? We are mindful that there are some who will hear me who don't know You. You had mercy upon us, Lord, in our lost condition, in our blindness and enslavement. You came to us with the gospel, and by your Spirit you set us free, made us to know you, and joined us together in union with Jesus. Lord, would you do that for someone this day? Would you save? 
We'll give you thanks for what you do in this next hour. In Jesus' name, amen. It's one thing to announce that judgment is coming. It's another thing to give a detailed account as to how it is going to arrive at your doorstep. And that is what our Lord is doing in our verses, beginning with our verses. We'll continue to see this tonight. He's not just announcing judgment upon Israel in their rejection of their Messiah. He is also giving a description of the details of it. How the world would move from the age that existed before the coming of Christ into the age that would exist after His coming, the age we're living in right now, the church age. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who was He? Who is He? What authority does He really possess? You remember this is what they're questioning Him about. By what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you preach what you preach and do what you do? They raised the question not because they really wanted the answer, but to imply that he was an imposter. And the way that he responded to that challenge made clear that the only imposters were the people asking the questions. The Pharisees, the scribes, are equated to hypocrites. They are the imposters. They are the frauds. They are the pretenders, not him. If you took away all that Jesus said, you would still have to answer regarding what He did and what it meant. Jesus Himself points this out in John 10.37, If I'm not doing the works of My Father, then do not believe Me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe Me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me and I am in the Father. I mean, what do you do with the signs? So they ask Him, by what authority do you do these things? He answers them with a series of parables that presents them their spiritual condition and declares their judgment. Now, after a series of woes, uh, judgment declarations, He begins to unfold their future. And in many ways, this is a post-mortem their rejection has already sealed their fate. He's simply telling them step by step what it's going to look like in the very beginning with the very near future. As he does this, he not only confirms their guilt, he once again describes their murderous character. This is what we begin to examine this morning. We're going to see three accomplishments of the judgment that Jesus announces. Three things that the judgment of God will make clear about Israel. And after looking at those three accomplishments, we're going to think about one unmistakable conclusion. One unmistakable conclusion. I'll just make mention of these points as we come to them. First of all, notice that what Jesus announces, what is coming in the way of judgment, will confirm their guilt. What will the judgment of God accomplish? It will demonstrate it will confirm the guilt of Israel. Notice the beginning words of verse 34. On account of this, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues. 
and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. On account of this. On account of what? Well, on account of their blood guiltiness. This is what he just talked about in verses 29 through 33. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. That's what he's talking about in verse 34 when he says, on account of this, on account of the fact that you are in league with those who have murdered the prophets, those who have shed righteous blood, all the righteous blood that's ever been shed on the earth. You're part of that family. On account of this, then this is what I'm about to do. I'm sending you prophets and wise men and on he goes. It's really amazing, isn't it? Because they have proven themselves to be those who persecute, malign, reject, and murder the messengers of God. The, the chief of all of that, of course, is they are striving to murder the Son of God, the Messiah. But because you have proven yourselves to be these kinds of people, I will send you more messengers. I will send you more messengers. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood. Earlier he says, verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. I will send you messengers until God's sovereign plan for the fullness of your guilt has been worked out. I want you to think about that for just a moment. The, the implications of this really are, are staggering. Let me just point out a few implications of what our Lord is saying. First of all, we are taught that God sends messengers to prove guilt just like He sends messengers to rescue. Sometimes God sends messengers to rescue. They will preach, they will teach, people will hear, they will believe, they will be saved. But sometimes, as our Lord is announcing right here, messengers will be sent to those whom God has already announced will not believe. But what are they going to do with these messengers? Some of them they're going to kill and crucify. Some of them they're going to flog in their synagogues. Some of them they're going to persecute from city to city. They're going to treat them like fugitives from justice. And yet, they will be sent. Why do you send messengers when you know, God, they're going to be rejected? Answer, to, to fill up the measure of the guilt that one day these people will answer for. This reminds us, doesn't it, that just because messengers are mistreated is no, no evidence that their persecutors have won. This is how we sort of think sometimes if we're not careful, that those who are in the position of persecuting 
are in a position of strength and those who are being persecuted are in a position of weakness. We talked about this last week that you can both be a dangerous person and in danger, which is why Jesus pronounces woes upon those who are persecuting. These people will be persecuted, but it doesn't mean they've lost. And it won't mean that the persecutors have escaped judgment or justice. They have not. In fact, apart from repentance, all it is going to do is store up more wrath for them. Romans 2.5 says the very same thing. Speaking to the Jewish people who are rejecting Christ to the very day that Paul was writing, Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The day of judgment is coming, and your rejection, your ongoing rejection, simply is is like stacking up more and more and more and more that you're going to pay for one day. Something else we need to remember is these messengers who are going to be mistreated, they're mistreated by men, but they're not being mistreated by God. Jesus, you're going to send these messengers And you're announcing in advance that they're going to be mistreated. Who who wants to sign up to be one of those those messengers? Well, honestly, we should want to sign up for that because those messengers are loved by the Savior. They belong to the Savior. They're sent by the Savior. And they're not being mistreated by the Savior. We need to get this into our minds and hearts, into our worldview. It is a privilege to be used by God as an instrument of rescue for people. That is a privilege to preach the message by which some are saved. But do we believe it is a privilege to be used by God as an instrument by which the guilt of some will be confirmed? I mean, your message will be rejected. You will be rejected. In fact, you might die for what you preach. Suffer for what you preach. Is that a privilege? Nobody minds being used by God to see people saved. Do you mind being used by God in His sovereign plan to establish and confirm the guilt of those who, by their own choice, reject the truth? The very way that Jesus speaks of these servants indicates His love for them when He puts them in the long line of those whose righteous blood has been shed, the blood of the righteous from Abel to the blood of Zechariah. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. You're always, dear ones, you're always in in the parade of the victors as God's people, always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. You understand, when people are being saved, the knowledge of who God is and His truth is being made known. And when people are rejecting the truth, what are they rejecting but the knowledge of God and His truth? Regardless His knowledge is being disseminated. His knowledge is being spread throughout the earth. For we, talk about a high privilege, we are the aroma of Christ 
to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance from life to life. Some get a whiff of the people of God, and it's to them a stench in their nostrils. And they are on their way to death. Others get a whiff of the people of God, the aroma of Christ to God in the people of God, and they smell life. And for them, it will result in their life. But you're privileged to be used whichever response you meet with. Because the Lord has rescued your life and is now making use of your life to spread the knowledge of Himself throughout the earth. In fact, the passage ends by saying, who is sufficient for these things? You want to talk about a privilege. Who is, who is sufficient for this? Luke 6.22, our Lord said this, blessed are you when people hate you. Can we just stop and acknowledge we struggle to believe that? You are blessed when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. I mean, just can we be honest with ourselves? You meet with someone who hates you, who excludes you, who reviles you, who spurns your name. I mean, the very mention of your name, they treat like a curse word. They treat you like you're evil. Key words here, on account of the Son of Man. They hate you because of Jesus. They exclude you because of Jesus. They revile you because of Jesus. They spurn your name as evil because of Jesus. You're blessed when that happens, he says. Jesus is saying this. goes on to say, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So their fathers did to the prophets. See, the real struggle we have, dear ones, is we, as much as we know better intellectually, we treat this world as though it is eternal, and we treat what is coming as though it's not coming. And in that way, we don't rejoice in these things because... All we have is now, and now is be being made pretty miserable. But if we could just see that what we have is not contained to now, and what is coming is far more lasting, eternally lasting, and it's full of the reward amazingly given to us because of God's grace, and that is the true knowledge of in His Son, there, this reward is found, and it's real. And if we believe that, then present momentary, <clears throat> momentary suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed one day. I'm sending you messengers. You've proven yourselves to be rejectors of those who represent the truth. So I'm going to send you more messengers. And you're going to reject them too. A few elements also we need to take note of here. Who is the one acting in all of this? This is emphatic in verse 34. Jesus is doing this. On account of this, behold, I am sending you prophets. P 
People who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, I'll say it again, people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God don't read the Bible carefully. Tell me who sins prophets, sages, scribes to anybody? Who sins the messengers of God to the nations? Who sends the messengers of God to Israel? Answer, God sends those messengers. But Jesus says he's sending the messengers. So who is Jesus? He is God in human flesh. He is the Son of God. So Christ is acting, and what he's doing is in response to to who these men have demonstrated themselves to be on account of this. Behold, take note of this, I am doing this. So he's responding to their, not only their wickedness throughout history, but their wickedness in the moment. This will be the result of your response to the Son of God as you've met Him face to face. This will be the response to your rejection of the Messiah as you now will move and act to see Him crucified. This will be the aftermath of what you're about to do. Christ is the one who's going to do this. Notice He is acting through His servant. Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. So when these prophets show up and these wise men show up and these scribes show up, They've come from the hand of Jesus. He is sending them. You think you're just meeting with messengers. You think you're just meeting with mere men, and you are in one sense, but what you can't see is you're meeting with the activity of Jesus himself. Christ is sending these servants, so he is working through these servants, which is why when the Apostle Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, 4, He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I've just been making life difficult for these lowly people who are part of this deceived clan called Christians. No, no. Actually, Paul, they're in the truth. You're outside the truth at this moment, Saul of Tarsus. And you're persecuting me, the resurrected Son of God. This is what he discovered. Matthew 25, verse 40, and the king will answer them truly. I say to you, as you did it to one of these, one of, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Matthew 10, verse 40 says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You don't have the father without the son, but you don't have the son while rejecting his messengers. You have the Son when you've received His messengers and received their message and believed their message, and that's why you have the Son of God, because you've believed the gospel. Christ is acting with the promise of the mistreatment of His servants. I'm not going to go over that again. I do want to underscore it, though. As I said, He honors His servants. He refers to their righteous blood. But notice also He has a variety of servants. They're going to be mistreated, but there's a variety of them. He's going to send prophets. The prophets of God, most of their preaching was simply declaring what God had already revealed. But as you know, the prophets, especially when you talk about now New Testament prophets, we're thinking forward, what Jesus is going to send. New Testament prophets, the foundation of the church along with the apostles. So through prophets, God is giving new revelation. Those who announce the truth God has already revealed, those who are announcing things that God is presently revealing at that time in history, wise men Men who simply know the truth and believe the truth, have imbibed the truth and lived the truth. Scribes, those who know the truth in a way 
that they study it and their authorities in it and they transmit it and they explain it. A variety of servants, so different ways of communicating God's truth, a prophet, a wise man, a scribe, but they will all suffer. The prophets will suffer, the wise men will suffer, the scribes will suffer. Which again reminds us that the problem men have is not really with the messengers, but with the message and with the one who sends the messengers. The hatred is for God, the hatred is for His Son, the hatred is for His truth. You can present the truth through a prophet and he'll suffer. You can present the truth through a wise man and he'll suffer for it. If he's faithful to the truth, you'll present the truth through a scribe. He'll suffer for it because the real problem is not with the messengers or the variety of the presentation. Will you please let go of this idea that if we're just nice enough people, we won't have to suffer for the truth. If you're faithful to the truth, you can deliver it in the nicest way you know, and you're still going to suffer for it. Because the real problem is with God and with His Son and with the truth. You're simply the messenger. And they're going to suffer in a variety of ways. Some will be killed. Some will be killed in the cruelest way imaginable, crucifixion. Some will be publicly shamed. Try to marginalize the truth by making it a spectacle. So they'll be flogged in the synagogue. Some will be, as I said, relegated to a life of wandering. On the run from justice, as it were, as they are persecuted from city to city to city. What is the one common denominator that runs through it all? The devil and his servants hate God and hate His truth. But Jesus will make use of these rejected servants. So that, verse 35, I'm going to send you these prophets and wise men and scribes, and here's how you're going to treat them. You're going to kill some and crucify some and flog some and persecute people from city to city. So that. There's going to be an outcome of this, you see. The result will be that upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. What God sent them for will be accomplished. What God meant to do with them will be done. Some He sends for salvation, some He sends for judgment. His Word never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. Do you know that the servants of God, doing the work of God, according to the purpose and plan of God. They're unconquerable. Your work is always being accomplished because of your sovereign Savior. He's the one who sends us. He's the one who uses us. But all this indicates, doesn't it, that Christ, I mean, as Jesus speaks this, He, he, is, he is just a day away from crucifixion. I'm going to do all this, He says. Well, you're about to be crucified. How will you do this? Answer, Christ is acting beyond His time on earth. For Him to send all these servants requires His life beyond His death. He will be crucified, but then He'll be raised from the dead bodily. This requires the resurrected Savior. This requires the triumphant Savior. This requires the ascended Savior. This requires the enthroned Savior. This is the sovereign Savior who's taken His place at the right hand of the majesty on high until all things that God has ordained come to their completion, and then He's going to return from heaven to earth. 
and usher in His kingdom, where there will be both judgment and salvation. He is, he is announcing what He's going to do in a way that tells us of a future beyond His crucifixion and His resurrection. So the first result of what Jesus is announcing, Israel's guilt is going to be confirmed. What has been true throughout, I'm talking about unbelieving Israel, what has been true throughout their history will take place yet again. I mean, after meeting the Messiah, after a resurrection that you can't explain, the tomb is empty. And you don't know where the body is. And his followers are saying they've seen him. And they're willing to go to their death on that testimony. And the same miracles Jesus did are now being done at the hands of the apostles. So that blind people are seeing and lame people are walking. And you are going to double down as these messengers come to you by killing some, crucifying some, flogging them. Your guilt is inexcusable and clear. Second, what is coming will establish their guilt. Second, what is coming will increase their guilt. I just said it, but let's mentally take note of it. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Upon you will come the Alpha and the Omega of all the suffering of the righteous throughout the ages. That's what he's saying. Who is this Zechariah, the son of Berechiah? It's been debated. It's a problem verse, it is, because it's difficult to ascertain exactly who Jesus has in mind. The reason being, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is the author of the minor prophet Zechariah, the preacher of the minor prophet Zechariah. His father was Berechiah. But there's no record of that Zechariah being martyred. There is a record of a Zechariah who was stoned to death in the circumstances described here between the sanctuary and the altar in the book of Second Chronicles, I believe chapter 24. But that would have happened in 800 B.C., long before the last of the Old Testament revelation. And his father was Jehoiada. Now, the reason why some would still look at 2 Chronicles and say that's the Zechariah Jesus has in mind is because in the organization of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis is the first book and 2 Chronicles is the last book. So our Lord would be saying from Genesis to Revelation, so to speak, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles, from the beginning to end, you're guilty of it all. On the other hand, why does Jesus mention Berechiah, who we know was the father of the prophet Zechariah, difficult to know, which, I mean, some have even argued that perhaps Jehoiada was the grandfather of Zechariah, or maybe Jehoiada was another name for Berechiah. I mean, there are all sorts of theories that have been offered. It's even possible, isn't it, that the prophet Zechariah was martyred. We don't know about it except from the mouth of Jesus. Not hard to believe that many prophets were killed in the temple complex. So, we don't know, but here's what we do know, and here's the main point. He's saying you're guilty of it all, and listen, one of the reasons why you can say, well, they, they weren't alive, but there's two ways in which they're guilty of it all. One, they belong to the same family. I'll talk about that in a moment. As he has already said, you're in the line of all these people who murdered the prophets and all the rest, but they know about it all. 
don't they? They have the Old Testament Scriptures. They have been able to read throughout their history of truth brought, truth rejected. Messengers arriving, messengers persecuted. They know about all of this, and yet they are doing it. You're not doing this without the knowledge of what it means. You're just following right along. You're just doing the same thing yet again. You do know, dear ones, knowledge makes you accountable to have a Bible in your hands. I mean, I don't care if it sits on your shelf and you never open it up. The Lord knows you have it. To grow up in a home where you're taught the Scriptures your whole life. To sit in a church where there's great care taken at the Bible study class level all the way to the pulpit of how we teach it and how we regard it and reverence it. And you've heard the message over and over and over again. One day, if you die without Christ, what judgment will have been accrued because of what you've known? It's not that you didn't know. These men know about persecution. They know about mistreating God's servants. They've read about it their entire lives, and here they are doing it again. This will increase their guilt. In this description of it, you hear God's sovereignty, don't you? Not only is He telling them what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, He really tells them for how long, doesn't He? Verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your father. There's some measurement, as it were. There's some standard that's being filled up so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. Don't ever confuse God's patience with permissiveness. God's not like us. He doesn't run out of patience because He has a limit found in His nature. It's only so much God can take. It's not like that. His patience is sovereignly determined. In other words, God is done with patience when God chooses to be done with patience. Though it's not been revealed to us exactly when, He has told us the time is fixed, the limit is fixed. There will come a day when it's filled up, when the measure is full, and then judgment will come. Don't ever imagine that just because God hasn't judged you now, you have escaped judgment. You know, the idiocy on display when you see people on video or whatever saying, if God is real, may He strike me dead right this moment. Like you're so important that God would have fixed His entire sovereign plan on your silly, foolish declarations. He sits in the heavens and He laughs doesn't have to prove anything to you or anybody else. He's God. And if you had any sense in your head, you would tremble. Because that patience is giving you space and time and room in love for repentance. And when the record shows one day, if it does, and I pray it doesn't, but if it shows one day that you took that time and instead of repenting, you mocked God, who is offering you space and time and opportunity to repent, what will your guilt be? In the same sort of way as His servants, we need to remember His sovereignty. Do you find yourself discouraged because some ways that you've sought to serve God have met with rejection and scorn? And we've already talked about this, but let me underscore it. You're, you're not failing just because the message is being rejected. So, all of it, they will be responsible for. You notice something he says, from the blood 
of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. What does that tell you? He's saying you belong to a family larger than just ethnic Israel. Abel. I mean, we're at the very beginning of human history. He's saying you belong to the kingdom of darkness. You see, there's a family that is responsible for all the shedding of righteous blood that has ever been spilled on the earth. From the first murdered saint to the last one, responsibility ultimately will fall to those who don't know God. That's the kingdom of Satan. That's the kingdom of darkness. This is the family you belong to. This is how you're guilty of it all because the family is guilty of it all. And you belong to that family. What is coming will establish what Israel has already been. What is coming will increase Israel's guilt. Third, what is coming will come swiftly. Truly, verse 36, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What he has just described and what he's about to describe, we'll see tonight. He speaks of her house being left desolate, verse 38. She is standing right on the precipice of it all. There's a tremendous turning point that is right on the horizon. Within the lifespan of that generation, a judgment, of course, judgment in its ultimate sense awaits the final day. But what Jesus is describing here will be felt just 40 or so years from the time he speaks these words. The destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. A horrific time of Jewish suffering will follow throughout the ages, not just when Jerusalem is destroyed, but this now is going to be the future of the Jewish people throughout the age we're living in right now. Do you ever stop and think, why is there this continued fixation on this little area of the world where Israel exists? And why such a hatred for ethnic Israel? Why so much anti-Semitism? Why so much hatred for the Jewish people throughout the earth? The answer is there's a judgment that has come, but there's also a real devil who hates everything that God has designed and purposed and will bring to pass. We are living in the time, in the time right now, of the results of her rejection of her Messiah. And it's horrific for them. They are both the persecutors of God's people, this is what he's described, the persecutors of God's people and a persecuted people because of their ethnicity. Persecution they give because of truth. Persecution they receive because of who they are. And who they are is hated because the devil hates what God has planned and purposed and will perform. What is God going to do one day? We're going to see it tonight. Despite all of this history of failure, God still has a plan for ethnic Israel that will include what amounts to their resurrection from the dead. When one day salvation is poured out upon ethnic Israel, when the Messiah returns from heaven to earth, that day is coming. Verse 39, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is coming comes swiftly. What then is the one unmistakable conclusion? When you read this, what is the unmistakable conclusion? The one who is telling the end from the beginning, the one who is telling the future in the moment. 
is God in human flesh. The one who can send messengers. And he speaks of sending them knowing he is about to be crucified. He's announced the fact to his disciples he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. He knows what is coming, but he says what he's going to send. Who is this one? He is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. He's able to speak as he spoke. By what authority do you do and say these things? Well, he's, he's God. Now let me ask you, is that the Jesus whom you worship? So we said a couple of weeks ago, there's only one Jesus who could ever save you, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who really exists. Every other Jesus, every other Jesus is a false Jesus who has no power to save you. Is your Jesus the second member of the triune Godhead? Is He the eternal Son of God who left heaven, came to earth, born of a virgin, took Himself an additional nature, a real human nature, yet without sin, to save us from our sins, who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross as a substitute, dying to pay for all the sins of all those who will ever believe in Him, who has been raised from the dead bodily, who's ascended into heaven and is enthroned in the heavens and is sovereign over all and will return. And every eye will see Him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Is that your Jesus? You see, is that your Jesus? And do you serve that Jesus in whatever way He chooses? When He chooses to use you as an aroma of life that leads to life, do you rejoice in that? Do you like being an instrument for salvation? When He chooses to use you as an aroma of death that leads to death, which will mean you're suffering, will you choose today to leap for joy in that day and to remember he loves you. He's not sending you to be rejected because He doesn't love you. The fact you would be rejected is the evidence you have been loved by Him. You are loved by Him. You do belong to Him. That's why you're hated. Regardless of the kind of servant you are or the way that you convey the truth, what's hated is God and His truth, not you, not in the ultimate sense. Can you rejoice in that? Will you say in your heart today, Lord, however you want to use me, it's too high for me. I'm not sufficient for it. I'll rejoice that I belong to you and can be used by you. Is that the Jesus whom you serve? Worthy to be served however He chooses to use you? Is it the Jesus who's talking about what He's going to do until He returns? Verse 39, until you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Are you looking for the return of your Savior? Are you longing for the return of your Savior? Are we living with a zeal that says we believe in the return of our Savior? So easy to be put to sleep by a world engulfed in sin. Are you awake? Are you alert? Looking for, longing for the return of the one who spoke these words because this one and only this one saves sinners. Do you know this Jesus? And all those who know Him are thankful that we do. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You. Thank You for our Savior. Thank You, Jesus, that You came to save us. Thank You, Lord, for these words You have preserved for us, kept for us, that we would know the truth. Your church is the pillar and support of the truth in this world of darkness. 
Strengthen us, Lord, to represent You faithfully, to represent You well. Steal our resolve so that if You choose to use us in ways that mean our persecution, if it means that we're rejected, if it means that we are reviled, if it means that our names are spurned as evil, strengthen us to believe You so that we rejoice. We leap for joy knowing that we are simply Your representatives. And that's why the suffering is present. As we sang, Lord, earlier this morning, though we go forth with weeping, strengthen us to be faithful in sowing the seeds of Your kingdom until the King returns, till we die and meet Him face to face. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.